Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MB. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. And I'm MD. And we are back for another episode. We hope you guys enjoyed last week's episodes. Episodes. Yes. Episode. It was two in one. Right, it was. It was like two episodes in one. Yeah. It was pretty good. You know, I, well, that's what I heard. I heard yeah. that it was pretty good. <laughs> so I heard. I heard it was yes. good. Um, but go ahead and, you know, let's get into it, MD. Yeah. Do I have any announcements? No. None. Yeah, we are actually going to, I think the only announcement I have is that we're going to be sending out those um, gift cards via email. We decided we're not going to ship them. We're going to send them via email because that's a thing. You can actually do that. Sure. And that's just easier on us. And it's easier for you. You can just click the link and then boom, there you go. There you go. So, so we're going to, I'm going to reach out to um, the winners. Have y'all send me your email. And we'll get to getting. Yeah. All right. So grab your coffee if it's the morning or your wine if it's the evening. But either way, let's get into it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's get into it. So we are traveling to Hotlanta. Hotlanta. You know. In the 90s. Which is like the golden era for so many different things, but... I feel like this is when most people found out about Atlanta being Chocolate City, being, you know, right on the cusp of being the black epicenter. And it is to this day. But I I would agree with you. I think, you know, Atlanta's always, arguably, I'm sure people from Atlanta would say, it's always been there. It's always been popping. And it may have. But it's when we started hearing that it was popping, I think, happened in the 90s. Right. You know, it came on the heels of, uh, you know, some great rappers that came out I mean, of, of course. Atlanta. Outcast. Outcast, T.I., Goody Mob. I mean, Dungeon yeah. Family. Okay. So let's get into this case. Yes. So it's the 90s, 1996 to be specific. This is when Atlanta is vibrant. It's exciting. A lot of stuff is going on. It's just off of the heels of the Summer Olympics, 1996. So many people were just flocking to Atlanta and it was becoming as we've already stated hot Atlanta as we know it today what we know it to be today so we are traveling to Cascade Heights which if you are familiar with the film ATL you would know about Cascade Heights yeah because it's a suburb in Atlanta and it was known as like basically where the upper class and the black elite lived you know how you have that suburb that is it's just like... A, right. And it's in every city. Every yes. city has it. Yes. So there's lawyers, doctors, political leaders. They lived in this neighborhood. And it was considered to be one of like the safest places to live. Like crime rate was... My gosh, it was low. So 
Fulton County police did not expect to tumble, fumble, whatever, arrive at this heinous murder on October 16th, 1996. 911 receives a phone call from a neighbor in Cascade Heights claiming that a young man came to her home claiming that he found his mother in the kitchen on the floor, deceased. Immediately, police respond upon entering the scene. Um, you know, the doorway is full of blood. You know what this reminded me of, MD? What? Last week's case. Oh, the second, yeah. The, the second. Se- yeah, the, the Courier family. Mm-hmm. Yes, because right when they walked in, it's just blood. Everywhere. Everywhere. And um, they proceed to go into the kitchen. There's also blood as well. And they found a middle-aged black woman on the floor of the kitchen And there was just so much blood everywhere, as I've already stated. But, I mean, I think it's important to emphasize that because it was just, it shows you how much that person probably, like, just struggled to get to whatever they were trying to get to, like, to save their lives, probably. So, anyway, so police are, you know, they're they're having to kind of leave her where she is because they can't tell, first of all, she's deceased, number one, but they can't tell if it's one wound or multiple wounds, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if you remember, we've highlighted this before in different cases, that once a person is deceased, they have to wait for the coroner to come. They can't move anything. It's like protocol. Right. It damages the crime scene that they do. So they have to preserve the crime scene. Yes, absolutely. So they start to look around and the woman on the floor had a shirt and it said re-election, you know, like re-elect judge so-and-so, right? And she also had on a pair of panties. Now, this is only important because it looked like she probably just got out of bed. You know what I mean? And so, um, they, you know, they're considering that she probably just woke up. Right. So this kind of sets the stage for when the murders actually occurred. Because if she just woke up, then it it may be likely that this happened earlier in the day. Absolutely. So, you know, police and EMT providers are on scene and they're looking around just at the crime scene in general, the kitchen table, the, the, the island, and they see that they were in the home of a very high official. The Honorable Judge Josephine Holmes Cook was murdered. Wow. So, you know, since they don't have the autopsy in front of them, they're waiting on the corner, all types of theories start to emerge. And they're trying to figure out who would do this. I mean, my guy, who would even have the nerve to do this, right? Right. And they're just trying to, like, piece the puzzle together. I think from the moment police arrive on a crime scene, right, they're trying to piece together the motive of why this could have happened. So what were some of the theories that they came up with? So... 1996 was a re-election year for Judge Holmes Cook, and she was very anxious to get back into providing her community service. However, she lost her re-election campaign. And many people just tend to believe that, you know, when you're in a public spotlight like that, you have probably have a pretty big ego. And so when you get rejected and the your constituents say, no, we want somebody else. Well, that could be a blow to your ego, and you may kill yourself. Because so they were considering a suicide. Suicide was a that possible kind of, theory. It seems really odd for the blood trail. Right. It's a okay. lot of blood, but What's could be, theory? right? Possible, possible. So another emergent theory is that since she was a judge, she had, you know, she was carrying out sentences, and it could have been a professional hit. 
Okay. That okay. Sounds, so like that payback sounds really for yeah, sentencing or you Yeah, know. I think that that's probably one of the theories that always happens when you have a judge or an official that that dies or or an attorney. That's one of the things like who they look at who were people that you previously convicted or, you know, you went up against. Right. I mean, and I feel like out of those two theories, that one to me looks Seems like, more likely. Right. So the medical examiner discovers during the autopsy that Judge Holmes Cook died from a single gunshot wound that entered her shoulder and exited near her neck. So she died of exsanguination, which just is a big word for she bled out. So they quickly ruled out the suicide theory and ruled it a homicide. Wow. Yeah. That's such a strange way. Like the bullet enters your shoulder and then travels up to your neck. Right. So what they surmised from that, since you talked about it, is that she actually was laying in her bed and the perpetrator shot her with her back facing the perpetrator. So she's in the bed sleep. He shoots her in, you know how you might have your elbow up? He shoots her in her shoulder and it hit, you have major veins in your neck. So the the bullet hit a major vein. A, a major, major vein artery. in her neck. It yeah. exited out a major vein in her neck. And that is how she ended up bleeding today. Wow. Yeah. So investigators are on the scene. You know, this is prior to the medical examiner like ruling um, her death of suicide. They're trying to collect all the DNA evidence that they possibly can. There's no weapon found on the scene, but they did collect fingerprints and other DNA evidence. So they began to like look and they noticed that there was a blood trailing from the stairs. So they went upstairs and realized that the attack, as I've already kind of gave y'all a little bit, started in Josephine's bedroom. They suspected that she was asleep in her bed, as I already stated, and the attacker shot her then. And she then got up and went from her room out to the stairs and then attempted to use the phone on the wall. Now, this is 1996. Right, because like, I'm like, oh, man, wish cell phones were around. She could have just picked her yeah. cell phone up. Yeah. So, you know, she tried to use the cell phone on the I mean, the cell phone. Lord, how mercy. <laughs> you see how this is? It's, not, it's 1996. She tried it's to use the actual phone. Yeah, she Rotary picks up the receiver. <laughs> <laughs> and they can tell that, you know, there's blood on the button. So she attempted to call out, but then the phone was pulled off of the wall and the cord was damaged. So she couldn't, you know, use that phone. However... She attempts to go to the kitchen. She makes her way there and she tries to get another phone that I'm assuming is in the kitchen that's different. Right? <laughs> like, right, so. because, you know, growing up, we had multiple phones and it wasn't just one phone. You know, there was a phone in my parents' room. There was a phone in the, the living room. You know, so you have more. Usually you have more than one phone. In the home. Right. This is back in 1996. Right. So she attempts to, you know, call for help. However, she ended up bleeding out. And they said that she just died a very long, slow death. That is heartbreaking. Absolutely. So while examining the 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 crime crime scene, they found that the judge's son was the person who alerted the neighbor that did the initial 911 call, okay? And his name is Raynard. 
And they noticed as they were upstairs surveying Josephine's room, like trying to figure out the whole, you know, her bleeding out, coming downstairs to make the phone call. They noticed that Raynard's room, his door is completely off the hinges as if somebody like pushed the door in and was looking for something. His room was absolutely ransacked. And they noticed that on the floor, they found like a plastic wrap of marijuana. Like, you know, like a brick, Mm -hmm. but it was, it was MJ, it was marijuana. So they noticed that. Plus there were little small baggies as if, you know, the person was going to bag it up and sell it. And there was a shoebox, and inside of the shoebox, there was a wad of money. Right. So initially they start to think, well, maybe this was a robbery, you know, because if there's, there's drugs now, granted, it wasn't a huge amount of drugs, but you know, that could be a robbery, right? right? That, that leads to some possible motive. Right. But they go back into Josephine's room and notice that her wallet and checkbook is on her dresser. And Rolex. In her Rolly. That um, was real. Untouched. Untouched in her room. So while they were there, though, they found something that they didn't originally find when they were in her room in the first place. They found a spent projectile from a 9 millimeter Glock and a brass shell casing. This was collected as evidence as well. So now they knew what kind of weapon was used to kill her. And so all they had to do was try to find who killed her. Who killed her? Who is this person? So, so they, they, yeah, they, they decide to have a conversation with Raynard. Right. right. So Reynard during this whole time is sitting over with the neighbor where he made that 911 call. And so when they get there, they're talking to Reynard and they're just like, hey, like, tell us about your day. What, what happened, you know, uh, that led to these events to you finding your mother deceased? And so he, he stated that, you know, he went to school like any normal day. Um, when he left the house at 7 a.m., his mother was still in bed. He had went to practice after school ended around 3.30, and then he got home at 6 p.m., and that's when he discovered his mom deceased. He admitted to the the investigators, because they asked about the weed and the the sacks that like, he what found. Is that like, about, what is so? that about? And so he admits, you know, that is my weed. I, I have sold weed to my friends here at school, which, can we just take a pause? For the cause. Because... We've already stated that Cascade Heights is a very upper middle class area. It's extremely nice. And, you know, Raynard goes to a very nice school, private school, and he's privileged by all, you know, all accounts. And yet he feels the need to sell weed. Yeah, because, you know, his main reason was, I, you know, I wanted my own money. Right. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. So the neighbor, you know, chimes in and she's, you know, she fills in and corroborates some of this testimony of Raynard's, which is, yes, Raynard came over to my house and, you know, told me what he observed at, you know, his home. So I walked with him back to his house and saw this bloody scene. And so we called 911. She said that she had Raynard, you know, come to her house, sit down and just wait for the police and EMT to arrive. So the police investigators take all of these notes. They have no reason to suspect that, 
you know, Reynard is not being truthful or honest. And so they, they don't make any arrests or anything. And the investigation continues. So naturally, what do most investigators do when, you know, someone dies? They look at the person closest to them. Right. So judge actually was married. And so they take a look at Reuben Cook, which is her husband. And so they get in contact with Reuben Cook, but he drove trucks. So he was out of town. He wasn't in town during during this time. But and they were able to corroborate this based on, you know, the logs and, and all of that, that they keep record of as, you know, truck drivers do. So he was nowhere near Atlanta at the time of the murder. They had been married for about 20 years and they were able to easily rule out that he was in any way connected to this crime because he was on the road more than he was ever home. And it really left Josephine to be a single mom, you know, and to raise Reynard on her own. Right. And according to a lot of the friends that they talked to, a lot of uh, Judge Cook's friends, the, um, she, she had a fine relationship with her husband. But she had a very contentious relationship with Reynard, her teenage son. So as I already mentioned, he went to a very nice school, Woodard Academy. And this is where a lot of the kids from this upper elite, the upper middle class, this is where in Atlanta, this is where they would attend. And Judge Cook was able to get him enrolled. And I'm surmising that this is because of really her status, because his grades. Yeah. His grades were not there. They were poor. They were poor. So the investigators just, you know, they they take this down. They write this down. They note that, okay, she had a contentious relationship with her son, but what mother or what parent doesn't in those teenage years, right? Sure. Teenage years are very trying times. And so it's not enough to say Reynard did it. And they're just back to this may, must have been a professional hit. So they continue to just try to rule out whether Judge Cook had sentenced anybody, you know, had a very difficult and, you know, case in her courtroom or whatever. So they, they take a look at the cases on her docket that dealt with armed robbery. And they found a case that dealt with a quadruple murder. And then there was one particular case that stood out to them, and the defendant's name was Elijah. You want to help me with his last Salahedrin? name? Salahedrin. 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 Elijah Salahedrin. And the quadruple murder that happened also involved a home invasion. And if you recall, they're still, the investigators are still trying to figure out, was this a home invasion? Was this a robbery gone bad? Or even was this a staged home invasion, right? And so, and it, Elijah Salahedrin's brother was also involved. So they, you know, collect fingerprints and DNA, but from, you know, Judge Cook's home, but they were able to rule Elijah out and they were able to rule his brother out. Right. Because the DNA did not match. So on October 20th, 1996, Judge Cook's family buries her. And everyone in the city and the community was at the funeral. She was very well, you know, acknowledged and, and loved. Professional friends, line sisters, church and community and political leaders were all at her funeral. And one of Josephine's closest friends was Judge Jessica Barrett. And she commented that Reynard didn't seem to be as affected as she thought he would be 
at the funeral or as I think people expect one to be at a funeral. Right. So let's talk about this a little bit, but only because I think it's so it comes up so many times in true crime stories that people naturally start to suspect people who are not acting in the traditional way of what or showing we emotion. Yeah. Right. Showing normal. emotion the way that they expect somebody to show emotion. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think it's a fair assertion because I think that it's human nature to expect a certain level of emotion from somebody who just lost somebody so close to them, like your mother or your child, you know, but I also think that you have to counter that by saying we are all different. Yeah. And then allowing time to kind of like, you know, rule out if that was reason enough to be suspicious, like collecting evidence. Like, is that enough? Or that's weird, but... Right, raise your red flag, right? For sure, like, maybe not a red flag, raise a yellow flag. Right. That's that's odd. That's that's different. Let me continue to observe and see if, if that is true. You know, so I think that... It, it, like you said, it's not enough to raise the red flag all the way to where we say, yeah, so he must have had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think it's something worth saying. That's different. Yeah. You know, we show our emotions differently. I, he may be the type of person that goes out in public and puts on a face, but then as soon as he closes the door, he's a mess. And breakdown. Absolutely. Or he could completely be the person that just doesn't know how to process emotion and doesn't show it the way that we show it. Or the way that most people show it. Right. So the police, they take account of this too. They write this down. They keep their notes. and But they find that they're at a dead end in their investigation. They find that they just have keep coming back up with the same conclusion that there's not enough evidence to look at Reynard. There's some odd things going on here, but there's nobody else to really point to when it comes to this. And they're just kind of at a loss. So according to some of their of Judge Cook's closest friends, they all kept pointing the finger back to Reynard. They kept pointing back to say, you know, Judge Cook was concerned that her son was doing something stupid. He was selling pot and he wanted to be a thug and he desired that lifestyle. And Judge Cook really hated this for her son and really didn't want to see her son go down that path. So because everybody keeps pointing the investigators back to Reynard, keep pointing back to Reynard, everything keeps coming back to Reynard, and they don't really have anything else pointing anywhere else, they bring Reynard back in to formally question him at the station. So they begin to ask him to tell his story over again. What, what happened when you found your mother? You know, tell us, tell us about the events of that day. And this is not, this isn't odd. This isn't strange that investigators did this actually investigators often ask you to tell your story over again because they want to see are you consistent there's a couple things that they're looking for they're looking to see one are you consistent with the story that you already told and or they're looking to see if maybe you you are able to after the shock of all of the events have kind of worn down a little bit are you able to pick up on some key details that 
you missed when you first talked to us. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So when they ask him this, he tells them a different story. Like a story that's actually drastically different from what he initially said. He said that he found his mother on her side or on her stomach. And he said that he picked her up somewhat and put her in her lap, put put her in his lap. He cradled her like a baby. Now, this is directly in contrast to not only his initial statement, but also to the neighbor's account because and to the blood evidence. Right here, you got all this blood. Steph tells us about all this blood and she emphasized it. And yet there's no evidence of like, Another person standing in this blood, sitting in this blood. You would see that in the pool of evidence. And then when they finally talk to Reynard on the day of the, that they discover the body, Reynard's not covered in blood. But if he cradled her, if he put her in his lap, wouldn't we see that blood on him? Furthermore, and I hit you with like a legal, you know, I'm doing a, a dissertation. Furthermore. The neighbor had all white furniture in her house. Reynard was sitting on her all white furniture. She even stated to them, because after Reynard gives this account, the police go back and they talk to the neighbor and they're like, did he have blood on him? And she's like, no, if he had blood on him, I would not have allowed him to sit on my furniture. So why was Reynard lying? Yeah, so detectives now have, like, motive to then look a little deeper into Raynard's story, into Raynard's friendships. And one of his friends, by the name of Damien, admits that Raynard had purchased a 9mm semi-automatic Glock two weeks leading up to the murder of his mother for $150. He said a couple of days before the murder... Wait a minute, Steph. You said 150 or 450? No, 150 dollars. Okay, 150 dollars. Mm-hmm. He's he a couple of days leading up to the murder. He and Raynard went to the gun shop in East Point. Shout out to East Point because Outcast and him from there. But uh, went out to East Point and inquired about um, the trigger on that gun. It wasn't working properly, so they were instructed to lubricate lubricate the trigger, and it would work. Armed with all of this new information, the police confront Reynard. But while the investigators are discussing the new information, so, like, literally this is going on, like, simultaneously. The same time they have Reynard in a room talking to him, they also have Damien in a room talking to him. Now, I don't believe that Reynard was aware of that, but that was going on simultaneously, right? So... And so Damien is the friend that helped him purchase this this gun. Well, it didn't help him purchase it. It was just a friend. Oh, okay. Yeah, Got it. just a friend. So um, one, the investigator who was talking to Damien actually walks out and he gets the investigator who's talking to Reynard and they, he pulls him out of the room. 
And Reynard is with his uncle and his father. And they're sitting outside of the investigation room, not too far away. They actually hear the investigator who was talking to Damien say to the investigator talking to Reynard that, hey, listen, we got him dead to right. Like he had a nine millimeter Glock gun. He did it. And the uncle and the father hear this. So like literally and the investigator is like rattled and scrambling to get back in the room with Raynard because he wants to keep Raynard there. Right. He doesn't want the uncle or the um, father to take Raynard away because like they he's not under arrest right now. Right. And they want to see if they can get him to confess. Yeah. Like, so they're, they're kind of like. Investigator always wants the confession. Right. So they're kind of scrambling. Uh, they get back into the investigation room and he's acting very quickly. And he basically asks Raynard, what did you do with the Glock? And Raynard responds that he just threw it away over the weekend. So, you know, he keeps probing him, keeps getting him to try to admit to where he put it. And he said he dished it in Cascade. Now, Cascade is a long street. You know, he was just like, come on, like, give me more information. Just tell me exactly where you put it. And as soon as he says this, the father, Reynard's father and uncle come into the room and they shut the interview down. I know. We getting a lawyer. So, you know, but really at this point, the police know who their perpetrator is, right? Like, they pretty much know. This is this is our guy. So investigators obtain an arrest warrant and search warrant the very next day. And they start surveillance on the house, which is really good that they did because they noticed Mr. Cook, Raynard's father and Raynard and his uncle are leaving the home. So they pull them over and Raynard's father asks the head investigator. He's like, listen, we're going to talk to a lawyer we will bring him down. We promise we will bring him down to the police station around two. And so the head investigator says, okay, cool. Like he agrees. And when Reynard arrives at the police station, he tells a story. He claims that someone made him shoot his mother and the assailant entered the home, brandished a wet, you know, brandished a weapon. And he said that he just, he had to like, because it was, you know, either he shoots his mom or he was going to get shot. This is the third story. Now, you know, nobody's believing this. This is straight BS. I mean, it's nothing else to say because like the evidence doesn't support it. Even now you have proved yourself to be not credible, right? Because if that was really the truth, why wouldn't you tell investigators that on scene? Like somebody came into my house and they, you know, made me shoot my mama, you know. Or even arguably you don't tell it on scene because maybe you're scared. Maybe you you really are nervous. Like if this is really true. But wouldn't you tell them when they formally bring you in? Like wouldn't you tell them on that second time where they asked you what happened again? You you wait. And now this is your third story. Yeah, I can't even say the second time. Like, bro, somebody made you shoot your mama. Like, for real, for real. You gonna tell the police when they first get there. Like, so for me and the evidence, I think that that's the other thing. Like, the, that's the caveat. Like, not only did you not tell them that, but then the evidence doesn't even support that that happened. No, for sure. I'm with you. I just think that arguably, even if I could, like, 
give you the benefit of the doubt here, there still makes zero sense why you didn't tell me on this second time. Like, I can't I make you, it make I sense. Just, I can't give him the benefit of the doubt. But <laughs> I feel you a lawyer, so you got to, you know, try to give people something. But they have enough evidence at this point to take him, to, to charge him. So what do they charge him with? They formally arrest Reynard, who is 17 years old at the time, on four counts. On malice murder, which they said was deliberate, felony murder, aggravated assault, and possession of a firearm. Now, by the time of trial, Reynard is 19 years old. And, and I want to just sit here for just a second because I think law and order and the TV shows of the day make you believe that you get arrested, you go to trial. Like, it really doesn't happen that fast. And it typically does take one or two, maybe even three years. Some It can happen quicker than that, but most of the time it takes time to gather the evidence and defend the motions that are coming before the child. So by the time he goes to trial, he's 19, and the family of the victim was the family of the defendant, and most of the family actually didn't believe that Reynard did this at all or did it purposely. They just believe like it was an accident and they just couldn't accept it. I think part of the reason they couldn't accept it is because it would hurt too bad to believe that her son took her life. The, the one she gave birth to, the one she gave life to, took her life. So, that's my thoughts. What's your thoughts, there? I mean, to, yeah, I, I definitely believe that. And I think, you know, a part of the grieving process is denial. So they were in denial. Because, you know, all the evidence pointed to it. He bought a Glock. Like, all the evidence that came out in court that the prosecution had. Like, bro, if you still walked away from that saying he didn't do it. You're in denial. Right, right. So this is the prosecution's case. This is what they believe happened on October 16th. So actually, we're going to start back on October the 15th. They believe that on October 15th, on the evening of October 15th, Judge Cook, Josephine Judge Cook, found a stash of weed in Reynard's room. And she found like all of this drug paraphernalia, this evidence, right, that her son was engaging in this behavior that she just didn't want her son to be engaging in. And she threatened Reynard that she was going to call the police the following day and have him arrested because she had to clean house. She had to do something extreme to prevent Reynard from going down the same path or that path that she saw him going down. And I think that this is what a lot of parents do when they come to their wits end, when they feel like they've done everything else, they've had the conversations, they've punished the child. And so it's like, I have to go to extreme measures to make you understand that this is not acceptable behavior. And so she told, she tells them, I'm going to give the police a call and they're going to come and arrest you for this. Well, this sends Reynard into a rage and on the morning of October 16th, with her back turned, sleeping in her bed, he shot her. Then he watched her struggle. And I think this is so, if this happened, I think this is the most heartbreaking thing. Because even if I can get to a place where I understand how you can get to a, a place of rage 
an anger that you actually contemplate and follow through with picking up a gun and shooting your parent. The fact that you watched her struggle is beyond my like comprehension. She watched her he watched her struggle to call for help downstairs and then he pulled the phone cord from the wall and he watched her struggle to get to the kitchen where she and to try to make another call where she finally collapsed in the kitchen and he left her there. He got dressed for school and he came back when he knew that she would be dead. And then he put on an act for the investigators. And I think it's really interesting because when the investigators found Raynard's room, the door off the hinges, it just it made me think of how parents would do that. I feel like my friends growing up, their parents would take the door off the hinges to remind you this ain't your room. This is my room. This is my door. No privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's black culture right there. Like, absolutely not. We're going to take these do- the door off the hinges. Now, Reynard did testify in his trial to... Um, and he stated that... And, and he came off at, on trial that he was really, you know... He was arrogant. Right. He came off that he was too smart for this trial. He was confident. He was arrogant. He just felt like he wasn't going to get caught. I mean, his parents, not his parents, but I mean, his dad. But he had his family on his side, too, probably, you know, boosting his head up, making him feel like, you know, I'm I'm good. I'm going to get off. Yeah, he he really thought that he had this in the bag. But what happens then? You know, the trial lasted two weeks altogether. And um, both the both the the defendant, I'm sorry, both the defendant and the prosecution put on a good closing argument. And you know, the jury deliberated for about 20 hours before Raynard's team came and said, "Hey, like, is there a plea deal on the table?" And and this happens when you see a jury is deliberating for a long time, and it it really kind of goes up in the air. You don't know what they could come back with, so. Raynard's team did the right thing. The defense team said, hey, let's see what they got. Because maybe, because what a plea deal is almost always going to be better than what you're going to get if, if the jury. If you were to, yeah, just allow the jury to. And and the DA actually comes back with a really amazing offer. What was their offer, Steph? It was a damn good offer. He just had to admit in open court that he killed his mother, plead guilty to manslaughter, which is a lesser charge. He would have got a 20-year sentence less. Uh, he would have, it would have been a 20-year sentence, but all in all, they would have allowed him to just do less than a year in prison. Less than a year. He would have received a 20-year sentence, but they would have allowed him to only serve one of less than one year of that sentence in prison. Yeah, and they wanted him to perform counseling, community community service, get therapy, all of the things because by God, you killed your mom. Um and this was more than generous. But beyond generous. I mean to the point where if I was her family or if I was friends of Judge Cook, I would be mad at that. I would not feel like that was justice. Like, if I really, really felt like, yeah, he killed his mom. But the family was pressuring him. And you could really see, based on what the prosecutor with the DA said, you know, he said you could really see that he was really, you know, caught between a rock and a hard place. 
and that hard place being his family. <laughs> you know, they surrounded him in a prayer circle, child, and they told him, if you plead guilty to this, if you go ahead and do this plea deal, you're dead to us. Dead. We will no longer support you. Um, and they just didn't want any more shame brought onto the family. Like, it wasn't enough, you know, that Judge could die this heinous death. But then now the son of this high-profile profile judge, judge is alleged to have killed her. They have this trial. It's like, by God, you're not going to embarrass us any right. you You will not plead guilty to this. Right. And he listens to his family and he decided he was going to take his chances and the jury came back and they said first count of malice murder not guilty and i mean i'm sure at this point the family is looking like see just yeah the grandmother is like this is exactly what we about to just bust through the courtroom like she's you know an audible gasp of excitement like yes yes yes, you know we cannot believe yes but remember he had four counts so the judge is like order in the court right second count guilty third count guilty fourth count guilty the family was completely (laughs) Like, I'm laughing. I'm sorry. It's not Y'all, I'm laughing because the family, I really believe that they believed when they heard that first count of malice murder, not guilty. I really feel like they felt like we did the right thing. See, like kind of told y'all. Right. This prayer circle worked. Okay. Yeah. She can't. She Listen, can't I just, I mean, it's an awkward laugh because it's like, What? Y'all, all this evidence, they were devastated. The grandma was, she rushed the railing. Um, you know, the people who sit behind the defendant and the prosecutor, she rushed that, the railing. The father was stunned. Um, and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole plus five years in state prison. It's it's such a heartbreaking case. And, and we laughed, but it really was not laughter at what happened. Because it's it's like, in so many ways, I do understand the family. It's like, we already lost her. We don't want to lose him. But I think that they got it wrong when they were trying to not, quote unquote, lose him. Because, because you were not a lot making him be held accountable for his actions. What is it, what is that teaching him? And that is not the legacy that Judge Cook seemed to be leaving as a parent. Right. Right. She was right. not she wanted him to be held accountable. Obviously, which is why she was going to call the police as she should have because her son was out of control. He obviously was out of control. And and as MD already stated, like that that laughter was one of like did y'all really think that he was going to get off? You know what I mean? Like, and I, my sympathy and condolences are with the family, but, um, you know, I think it's, I have been watching some documentaries kind of off topic, but we'll, we'll slide in takeaways in a second. But I've been watching some documentaries on Prime about families that have a murderer in their family that killed a loved one. 
like very obviously this, right? And one of the mothers, her son killed her four-year-old daughter. He was 13. And she wanted her son to go to jail. She was like, he needs to go. She continues to talk to him. She continues to love him. But she knows that her son needed help. And and he needed to get the consequences that he deserved for killing his sister. That part. And that, that, that last part is, to me, the biggest point here. It's, yes, I still love you. My love for you doesn't change because you jacked it up. You messed it up. You dropped the ball. I have four children, and they're going to make mistakes in their lives. And some of them, you know, may be mistakes that they have to answer, have, you know, harsher consequences for. And I'm going to want them to face those consequences because that is a part of their action. Like, there there is a cause and effect. If you do this, then this will happen. You have to sow, you have to reap what you sow. He sold killing his mother. The consequence of that is going to jail. Absolutely. And I think I think the court, meaning the court, the DA did something very generous when he offered him what he offered because I think he considered the fact that when this crime took place, he was 17 years old, right? He knew that there needed to be some type of consequence as going to jail. But then he offered help, too, right? In counseling, therapy, community service. He was trying to get him some help. He was actually trying to do exactly what our system is designed to do now. Doesn't always do. But what our system is designed to do, which is to rehabilitate, right? To rehabilitate and to deter. That's the purpose of the judicial system. And that is what he actually was trying to do. Hey, I want to... I want to deter, I want to, you know, to deter you from doing this again. That's the prison sentence. That's the sentence. And then I want to rehabilitate you so that you don't reoffend. And that's the counseling. That's the community service. That's the, you know, getting the help that you need. And for the family to just completely disregard that and to say, no, we're just going to, and not even, we really believe you didn't do this, but we know you did it, but we just don't want you to bring shame on our family. All right, let's just save face. All right, let's slip into these takeaways because that is too much. Yeah, so my takeaway, I think I have two, but I think I'm going to cover the one that I think is most, that stuck out to me the most. So, um, you know, I'm, I would say that I grew up very privileged, um, not going into too much detail. You know, I had a very good upbringing, grew up in one of the cities, you know, I wouldn't say too bougie suburb, but it was very much like Cascade Heights and went to private school pretty much all my life. <laughs> and I kind of related to Raynard in that way, in that way only. Okay. Um, but I think about the guy, and I don't know his name, but he's a basketball player. <laughs> and he's the one that said, it's a parade in my city. Yeah. Y'all know John what I'm talking Morant. about. Yeah. And it's this fascination with 
hood culture and not that you know because I just feel like we all got cousins even if you grew up uh you know upper middle class you had hood cousins you had people who grew up in the in what they say quote unquote the hood is but there's something about like suburb kids that want to be down so bad you know and they have all of these opportunities afforded to them and I would just say if we have you know people who are listening to us or parents who are listening to us kids um or teenagers that listen you do not have to emulate that like you don't have to emulate that to be cool you know you set the standard of cool whatever you decide to do is cool you do not have to sell drugs you know you don't have to have your own money by selling drugs get a glock and do all this behavior that will lead you to a path of darkness now it might not be shooting your mama but it can wind you up in jail well and just to piggyback off that off your takeaway Steph I think what's really profound for me is that our dad's church was in the inner city is in the inner city and so while we had this very privileged upbringing we we never were disconnected to like you know people that that didn't have that privilege right and if you talk to people that were poor and underprivileged and were had to grow up in the hood in the ghettos they they'd give anything to like live like you to have your privilege right they don't want to live this lifestyle i know my brother-in-law steph's husband he said to me he was like yeah you know actually the gangsters you know they would they would find the boys that and the men that you know that had the potential and they say we we don't want you to come down this path right we're gonna try to because this this path is not for you it's not you want something better than this and so it just always blows my mind when you see these people that you grew up with privilege you didn't have to go get a gun to they they have guns because they got to protect themselves yeah, because and they very choose literally. that life. Most most of the times they don't choose that life. You know what I'm saying? They don't, right. they they don't want to be. You know, I have a cousin who was just like, I don't want this thug life. Like, I don't, this is not what's up. This right. Like, how can I get out of this? Right. Like, so they don't even want it. And I I know I know our um, black culture glamorizes it. You know what I'm saying? We act like it's the end thing to do. And but the truth of the matter is, is that. You said cool, and cool is not where you wind up in prison. You know what I'm saying? That's not cool. Your life is stripped away from you. For sure. My takeaway is really to the parents, and if we have teenagers on here, is really directed more towards you. Your brain, and I know I have said this so many times, but your brain is not fully, fully developed until you are 25 years old. And I think it's just really important as parents and, and it's, you know, somebody's going to have to remind me of this as my kids get into the teenage years. But it's really important as as parents to continually talk to our children just about, you know, your you cannot allow your emotions to drive you. And I think so often in our 
in our culture, and I'm when I say our culture, I'm talking about the American culture, we follow our emotions. Like, I ain't happy, so I'm quitting this job. I'm quitting this marriage. I, I you know, it's, 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 about, it's about my happiness. It's about my peace. It's about this. And, and that same mentality shifts to the negative, right? Like, I'm angry, and so therefore I need to have some satisfaction out of this anger. Like, I'm angry, therefore you're going to feel my anger. And I think it's so important at a young age to begin to teach your children how to handle their emotions, to understand that it's okay to be angry, but you don't act out of out of your anger. You don't operate inside of your emotions. Yes, you're angry, but you but you don't act out of that. That's what happened here with Reynard. Reynard was angry because he didn't like what his mama was doing. And instead of Reynard sitting down for a second, thinking through it or sleeping on it or just going to bed and recognizing my life ain't really even over yet. I just, you know, can't do XYZ. He went and acted inside of his emotion. And I think that that, and that one act, that one act of anger changed his whole life. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I know y'all gonna be like, dang girl, how many documentaries you watching? But listen, I watch a lot. <laughs> I mean, but I literally just watched a, a documentary about the Columbine shooting. And it was about uh, one of the mother's sons who actually did the, the, the shooting. And um, one thing that they are trying to do now, I can't say they're doing it in, in our school system, at least not yet, is where they're teaching kids how to deal with their mental health young, right? Like, so breathing techniques, when you get really, really upset, really, really angry, or writing techniques, when you're angry, go write it out. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you deal with your emotions when you are angry? Because guns and things like that, I know we, I'm not going to get too far into the gun conversation, but guns and things like that are so accessible. Like, kids, because they're not, their brain is not developed, they do go to the extreme. Like, my life is over, you know, this is crazy, my mama trying to send me to jail. But if they had the tools, as as much as we talk about, you know, doing you know, alerts in school and having kids take shelter and locking the classroom doors, those are all good. But those are all after the facts, right? So a preventative method is to teach kids how to deal with their emotions. You got to equip them. And that's prevention. And I think if we taught that more in America, America's culture, we may have less, not that it would alleviate all, but we would have less of these incidents that happen because like MD said, you know, you're 17, your mama take your phone away or she says you can't go nowhere. You feel like your, your life, life is, is over. over. And I'm, I felt like that. I, rem- I vividly remember my parents punishing me for whatever. And I literally felt like that was it. My life is over. Devastated. 30 years later, here I am. Not, still here. Still here. Not the world's old, still not, turning. I'm telling you. But in when in your 16, 17, 18-year-old mind, you literally cannot process it. Right. It, it, and even when you tell a kid, oh, it'll get better, they cannot process it. But that does not mean you don't continue to try to give them the tools to help them process. Right. And so I think, you know, I know I do this for my kids. When they're angry, I'm like, okay, you're upset. Let's talk about it. 
like equipping our kids with preventative measures and not just looking to do things after something really bad happens. You know what I'm saying? So I, I just encourage parents and I'm encouraging myself like David did in the Bible. Listen, teach your kids how to process anger, how to process sadness, hurt, rejection, all of those things. As you're rearing them, you have to equip them with the tools that they need. And once again, y'all, I was not laughing because I thought it was really funny. I was laughing because it was like I was astonished that they really thought this man was going to get off. We, but, get, we get you, Steph. We get you. Yeah. No. All right, y'all. Well, that's our case for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Yes. Make sure you like. Give us some five-star reviews. You can find us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. And remember... If you care, what did I say? If you share, share if you care. You know, I, got it. I got to do yeah. the doctor. Suits. We have to. <laughs> you know, we gotta we gotta share keep the same care, energy every single time. So we'll see you guys next week. Bye.